Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about Lair of the White Worm. You will have the honor of being sacrificed to Diamond alive. There is a legend of an ancient evil. Something's been found in Stone Rig Cavern. A legend that no one would ever believe. The legend has Stone Rig Cavern was the lair of the Dampton Worm. Unless, of course, it came right up and bit him. One, two, three, four! I hear you're having trouble with a snake. Diana was a pig snake god. I'm snake watching. As if they were just swallowed up. John Dumpson went a fishing once, a fishing in the weir. He caught a fish upon his hook. He thought, look mighty queer. Now what the kind of fish it was, John Dumpton couldn't tell. But he didn't like the look of it, so he threw it down a well. Ha! We must take the word worm to literally. It's an adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon virum, meaning dragon or snake. Ah, uh, the experience of a lifetime. Now the worm got fat and growed, and growed an awful size. With great big teeth and a great big mouth and great big goggle eyes. So John set out and cut the beast and cut it into halves. And that soon stopped it, eating babes and sheep and lambs and cats. From the director of Altered States and the creator of Dracula, a new movie of venom and vengeance. Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm. I'm famished. We stop on the way for a bite. Uh, watch out for your ass. I am the parent of a two-month-old child, and this leaves me a lot of time to watch things in the wee hours of the morning. So lately I've been getting back into the Great British Bake Off, which I have to say is about at the intelligence level that I have for that early morning TV. Uh, it was something that I watched a lot of during the pandemic when we were all really desperate just to feel good and happy and like the world is simple almost like a country house fantasy where there are sheep grazing and no signs of labor no signs of anyone actually tending the sheep or of any work going into the land whatsoever that british fantasy world um i'm mentioning it only because we're going to talk about some classics of british literature and watching the bake-off put me put me kind of actually weirdly put me in the mood for this week's movie so i thought i'd mention it <laughs> So I have a problem with Bake Off in general, which is the Great British Baking Show. They don't show you how they make stuff. That bothers me because I want to know how to make stuff. So they show like elaborate artist renderings of what it's supposed to look like. And then they start <laughs> making them and then you get to see like, what <laughs> the disaster is. Yeah, but they don't actually tell you the recipe because I want to make some of this stuff. Right. So for me, a cooking show has got to be that or else I want it to be as fiercely competitive as Iron Chef and not like everybody supports each other. Wah, wah, wah kind of stuff. The ones that I do like are the ones where Noel Fielding is on there who's basically mm -hmm. the goth guy. Yeah. Because goth guy and vampire from the IT crowd. Yeah. 
I, on the other hand, have had very little time to watch stuff because I got a new iPhone. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And everything on it has not worked. And I've gone through incredible pain and a lot of tech support, including as recently as an hour ago. You better be careful what you say. Apple Podcasts is going to take us down. I know, I know. So I'm. I I was just going to say I probably shouldn't say that it's Apple because John Stewart just lost his show for criticizing Apple. Oh man! Did you know that? No, I missed that. Oh, yeah. so that's the big news this week. The problem with John Stewart, which was a great show, not as good in my opinion as his run on The Daily Show, but similar on Apple TV got canceled before even the end of its second season. Uh, there were a couple of issues, but one of the big sticking points was a criticism of Apple's iPhone manufacturing in China. Basically, the show is gone. It's off the air now. Like there's, it all still, you can watch the back episodes. It's the the news this week and and all the other late night talk show hosts are, you know, making fun of this in their monologues in the last day or two. Oh, I'll have to catch up on that. Lair of the White Worm from 1988. I remember seeing this in the movie theater at like a midnight show. You could only see it like at least in my city at like midnight in the art theater for like one night or something like that. Or maybe one week. Maybe it was one week, but I had to see it on the weekend. And I was born in 1988, so I miss seeing this in the theater, <laughs> but okay. I bet it was amazing. <laughs> I went through a Ken Russell period after seeing this. This was around the time when I was really getting into cult and independent directors like Richard Linklater and Ken Russell and David Lynch and Alex Cox. Uh, those kinds of things, because you could see their movies at this art theater. It was so much better than what was in the multiplexes at the time. Let's give a little bit more of a background to that year of 1988. Just some brief snippets to give you an idea of what was going on at the time. January 4th of 1988, the band Whitesnake performed at Newcastle City Hall. A month later, they would be nominated the Best British Group in the Brit Awards but they lost to the Pet Shop Boys. February 17th, the Chinese New Year of 1988 begins. It is the year of the Earth Dragon. March 7th, the Writers Guild of America goes on strike. 9,000 movie and TV writers begin the longest strike in WGA history. It lasts for 153 days, and it surpasses the 1960 and 2023 strikes by five days. April 1st, BBC One has the network television premiere of Rankin and Bass's animated film, The Flight of Dragons. May 8th, the cult movie series Movie Drome debuts on BBC, and it's hosted by director Alex Cox. The first installment shows the 1973 Christopher Lee folk horror classic, The Wicker Man. Which we just played at the hop. Oh, you're so excited. I know, I know. We'll, 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 I think the Wicker Man will come up in discussion today. 
In June, Dragon Publications is founded to take over publication of Dragon User Magazine, a magazine for users of the UK-built Dragon 32 and Dragon 64 computers. Ever hear of a Dragon 64? No. no. The computer company filed for bankruptcy the year before, and the magazine would cease publishing in about six months. Mm. <laughs> I think they were Welsh-made computers. They were very similar to the TRS-80s by Radio Shack. July 2nd, Christopher Coppola, this is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew, Nick Cage's brother, makes his directorial debut with the film Dracula's Widow, a low-budget horror movie about one of Dracula's brides. September 6th, the first episode of Count Duckula airs <laughs> in the UK. And then uh, October 21st, Lair of the White Worm is released. I wanted to start by talking about the two main pieces of source material for this film. The first, of course, is the novel from which it takes the title, uh, The Lair of the White Worm, written by Bram Stoker in 1911. So post-Dracula. It is not considered a great novel. <laughs> it is it is not an enduring classic the way that Dracula was. But there's some interesting things about the book that if you're a Dracula fan, you would notice some parallels. For instance, there's a lot of racial politics in the book that does not appear in the film whatsoever. There are Black characters, there, there are characters from the East, and there's a sense of racial overtones to who is seeking out violence in a way that doesn't appear at all in the film, but I'm mentioning it only because there are some interesting layers probably worth analyzing. If you are a Bram Stoker fan, check it out. And there's okay, also- wait, I yeah. got to interrupt here because the the horror writers award is the Bram Stoker award and it gets a pass in a way. I'm not sure. I haven't dug too deep into Bram Stoker, but I have read Dracula and there's definitely some like, Eastern Europe gypsy kind of um, thing going on there. Yeah, there's that. There's that. Okay. But like Dracula is also like, depending on your interpretation, he's coded as Jewish. He's coded as Irish. Like there's all sorts of layers of interpretations that, that different scholars have put on the novel. But ethnically, uh, Romany, uh, specifically yes. one tribe of gypsies is mentioned in the book as sort of Dracula's allies, you know, the yes. ones that help him. And I like to cut people from a previous era as some slack here, but it's, I think it's odd that we criticize HP Lovecraft and the Lovecraft award, which is the dark fantasy award had to be renamed, but the Stoker award is still from Stoker. While I'm on the subject, you were talking about reviews for the book. H.P. Lovecraft actually was one of the big critics of it, along with Les Daniels and Brian Stableford, all horror writers who have criticized Lair of the White Worm for being just bad writing. Yeah. Rod Serling's Twilight Zone magazine listed it among the worst horror novels. <laughs> Yeah, well, it seems like it's it's bad writing. There's a lot of melodrama in it about different women plotting to marry the rich guy in town. So it's like Pride and Prejudice crossed with 
Dracula somehow, but then badly written. Like imagine those two great novels meshed together, but then done badly. And you might have something like Lair of the White Worm. So it's like a rom-com crossed with a horror movie. Yeah, or at least the jockeying for like who the eligible bachelors are and the women gauging their marriage prospects and competing with each other in murderous ways in order to entice the landed gentleman. Anyway, that's the novel. As you can tell, Ken Russell, the director, took that and ran with it. He decided to make a modern adaptation and he also decided to draw in more of the original legend of the Lampton Worm into this story. It's kind of a prodigal son tale of this nobleman, John Lambton, when he's a kid, finds this worm that, you know, obviously is not just like a regular worm. And he throws it in a well and then leaves town to go on a crusade. While he's away, turns out the worm turns into a huge, like, dragon thing. It's unclear whether it's more serpent or whether it has legs or not, depending on the interpretation of the legend. But eventually, John comes back and the worm has decimated the town and he feels responsible. So he kills the worm, but he's given a prophecy by a witch first that says that his family will be cursed for nine generations unless he kills the first thing he sees after slaying the worm. And he comes up with this whole plan with his dad where the dad is going to let his favorite dog loose like right after the worm has been slain and the dog would reliably come running right to him so he could shoot the dog and be done with it but the father kind of forgets the plan and accidentally comes running into his sight first so it's sort of one of those tales that's meant to explain why this family has had such terrible luck for hundreds of years it all comes back to this worm anyway another cool legend definitely worth checking out but with those bits of source material Ken Russell goes out to make a film that is not really about anything. As you could tell, Stoker, despite writing the book badly, maybe had some things to say. The legend itself, of course, tapping into kind of classic themes of like fate gone awry and whatnot. But no, Ken Russell makes a film that is, in the words of actress Amanda Donahue, doesn't mean anything at all. She was excited to take the role precisely because she could have this big brassy lady character who does whatever she wants. And as a stage actress, she was looking forward to having a film that was a little bit more frivolous. Tilda Swinton actually was considered for the role. And I would love to see a remake of this done with Tilda today. It would be amazing. But uh, she looked at the script and turned it down, which, you know, I kind of don't blame Tilda even though the film was was quite fun. Ken Russell actually insists that this film is a comedy, although I don't know if it started out as a comedy or he wrapped it and decided that that's what it had become. <laughs> uh, no comment on that yet. <laughs> yep. Special effects were one of the few things that the film was really recognized for, the different layering of the flames and, and imagery sort of like what we saw in our last episode. That would have been The Devils, another Ken Russell film. Yeah, The Devils. Yeah, he remains obsessed with crucifixes and using them in fantasy sequences, which we'll talk about anon. The movie opens with this archaeology student 
he's digging up the, the backyard or the front yard of the bed and breakfast that is run by his friends. It's supposed to have been a convent, but he comes across this large skull, which looks kind of like a snake. He thinks that this might be related to a local legend of the Dompton worm, which worm often used synonymously with dragon or serpent in British folklore. So he takes this, puts it in the house, uh, this artifact. Soon after that, someone else brings over a pocket watch that used to belong to the father of the Trent sisters, Eve and Mary. Intentionally biblical allusions there, I think. So the pocket watch causes a little bit of distress because the father has been missing for a year and, you know, suddenly this watch turns up. The watch was found near the Temple House, which is owned by Lady Sylvia, a.k.a. the role that Tilda turned down. (laughs) Right. First, they all go to this rock and roll country dance together. Oh, that's right. Which is great, by the way. Yeah. Wonderful scene. Traditional folk song. So this is a real legend, right? The The Lampton Worm. Yeah. Which they call the Dampton Worm. Dampton Worm. Lampton Worm. Dampton Worm. But this song about the Lampton Worm is, it's like a real song. And they got some unknown band to perform it at this festival with a big dragon costume, bunch of people under a dragon, and it's cut in half at the dance. I think it's ritually cut in half by the local aristocrat. Hugh Grant is playing a character named James, who is the supposed descendant of the original slayer of the white worm. Right. So there's this ritual slaying, you know, and then they all like go have punch and pickled worms and aspic, which Angus is wolfing down. Yeah. And he's like, what is this stuff? Yeah. It was very Temple of Doom-esque, that that spread. Lots of tentacles. Lots of things I would not eat. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm i kind of glad we are not doing a lobby segment this week. Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah you, uh, would, you would have to explain your grilled octopus recipe or pickled worms. Lady Sylvia is bad news because she sneaks into the bed and breakfast and steals the giant snake skull. And then also reveals her fangs and spits acid at the crucifix they have on the wall. Yeah. This film is at least as much inspired by vampires as it is by anything else. So crucifixes and fangs and all that. It's like vampires, except instead of bats being their totem animal, snakes are. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point they actually explicitly say like, oh, so they're like vampires. I mean, just to make it nice and easy on the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The connection of the crucifix, though, is a little bit different in this story. In, you know, most Dracula and vampire related things, it's because they're damned and going to hell. And that's why the crucifix is anathema to them. But in this story, it dates back to, you know, thousands of years ago when this area of England was occupied by the Romans. And there is what I would say, like a pretty horrific mass rape fantasy scene that happens in 
when Eve touches the crucifix and has this flashback to what we later find out as a past life where she used to be one of these nuns that was attacked by the Roman soldiers. And I don't actually know why this scene has to be in the film other than just for like gratuitous violence, just for, for its own sake. <laughs> I don't know why it needs to be here either, but I think what they're trying to say is that the snake cult, which is headed by Lady Sylvia, she has like a vendetta against them for having built this convent on top of what had previously been yeah the pagan temple for their snake god so i think it has something to do with that conflict that has been going on for forever anyway she's got plans for the snake skull it's clear that she's going to try to raise that snake god from the dead or bring it back into great power and so yes now here comes our hapless young hitchhiker kevin who is a Boy Scout. Like, he's got the Boy Scout logo. I didn't know that they had Boy Scouts in the UK, but it's something equivalent, if not an actual Boy Scout. You know she's evil because when she showed up, she was driving a Jaguar. And like we've said before, if a character is driving a Jaguar in, well, definitely in British films, but in most films, they're the villain. (laughs) She's driving her Jag and finds this young guy, Kevin. We're told he's a virgin at some point here. Yeah, or it's very heavily implied. Okay, yeah. So she takes him back to her place, has him take a bath, and uh, then, like... She bites him in the dick. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, she she's getting ready for foreplay and everything. And Kevin is nervous, nervous, nervous. And then actually like seems like he's just about to kind of get into this whole thing when she fangs him in the dick. Yes, off camera. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and that paralyzes him. He's going to be used apparently as a sacrifice to the snake god. At some point, James has to go visit Lady Sylvia. Well, I think he's kind of suspicious. He's going there maybe to find out what happened to the giant snake skull or that the pocket watch was found over there. So there's just general suspicion that he's going to go check out. And he shows up wearing his uh, pilot's hat. Like, what is the hat that he's wearing? Like, I was trying to figure out, like, is he a military officer? There's this whole fantasy sequence later with the plane, but I couldn't figure out what the fuck the hat was about. I think that we need (laughs) the users to, like, write in and tell us, because I have no clue what that hat was all about. I mean, it was, like, combination, like, police officer mailman hat, and it just seemed like such such an odd choice for his character, unless it's a military uniform, and then even then it was... You know, sort of like, oh, that's interesting for him. <laughs> well, so he shows up and he's he's kind of investigating, kind of suspicious. And Sylvia gives him this whole song and dance about how she's terrified by snakes. And then he's like, but you're playing shoots and ladders by yourself. 
and or snakes and ladders. Sorry, very snakes specifically, very specifically snakes and ladders. Um, so for those who don't know, snakes and ladders is the game that originated in India was meant to teach moral lessons and stuff like that. And it is known as snakes and ladders all over the world, except in the U.S., where it had to be marketed by a company and they said, you know, no parents going to buy this game for their kids. Uh, so whatever Parker brothers or Milton Bradley, whoever owns the license to it in the U S changed it to shoots and ladders. So, but this is snakes and ladders. Yeah. Yeah. So she says, well, I, I'm terrified of them, but then also like fascinated by them. And the way they play the scene, apparently Ken Russell had them watch some clips of uh Noel Coward comedy and like, you know, like a drawing room farce kind of thing. And he said, I want you to play the scene like that. So so if you get a sense of there's a, a little bit of camp to this, it is absolutely intentional. That's what he's going for. Oh, it goes beyond that. She ends up throwing the snakes and ladders board game in the fireplace. And as it's burning, says Rosebud, Rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is... That is a gratuitous Citizen Kane reference because there was no reason for it. There was no. absolutely no reason for it. <laughs> Just for fun. And and I, you know, when there are moments like that in the film, I am tempted to believe Ken Russell's insistence, like, no, it's a comedy. It was meant to be this way. And it, it only gets more ridiculous from there because when James gets home, he has this absolutely insane dream where he's you know falling asleep looking at a painting of the lambton worm legend where his ancestor killed the dragon and he imagines himself walking into the painting but then once he gets into the painting then he's suddenly on the tarmac and he's getting on a plane with sylvia and the trent sisters eve and mary and He's on this plane and some of the past victims are also on the plane tied down. And then Sylvia tries to attack him and tie him down. So his dream is sort of telling him what's going on. But this was one of my favorite sequences in the film. Like just like how out of control this gets. But then also, I mean, I have to say one of the things I love the film for the most is uh, the garter belts. Like so many so many great shots of women's stocking legs and the the garters showing and yeah it, when i was it did at, it for me it did it so, for me yeah me too i was 18 years old when i saw this and you have to remember that's before the internet and stuff like that so like seeing that was not be something you would normally see on a day to day basis and uh whoa that scene was hot um and then then it turns into it turns into a girl girl fight yes <laughs> although we didn't get the actual like meowing sounds we got in forbidden zone um there were there were not actual cat fight sounds <laughs> no but wow that scene was uh steamy in a weird way like it it's it was a weird sort of way but yeah yeah and you know particularly at the time i was into katherine oxenberg who is one of the two sisters Ironically, although she she plays, you know, commoner in this, she's actually royalty. Hmm. Well, she was on Dynasty, right? Wasn't that what that was her claim to fame? Yeah, she also played Princess Diana. I remember that the family gave her the blessing because she was a relative. 
Mm. She's from Eastern European royalty. Mm. But I remember her saying at the time, well, it's like rabbits. If you're related to one, you're related to all of them. Yeah. So, so they were distant relatives. Okay. So yeah, that, that was great. That scene. Next, Hugh Grant decides to continue the investigation and takes the two sisters and Peter Capaldi spelunking. And Hugh Grant looks absolutely ridiculous in his rain jacket with the hood up and the helmet on top of it, eating a sandwich. And they're looking around to see any other evidence of the lost father. They're looking near where the pocket watch was found. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. There you'll find popcorn and an assortment of popular candy bars to please every taste. Try one of these delicious candy bars. Big time. Butternut. Milkshake. Payday. Topped with Hollywood's super rich coating of the kind you like best. They taste wonderful. They're delicious. They're nutritious. Get one at our confection counter in the lobby now. I said we weren't going to have a lobby segment here. I lied because I remembered what I paired this with. Is it damp bologna sandwiches? <laughs> it is not damp bologna sandwiches. <laughs> I had single malt Glenlivet 12 scotch. Mm-hmm. I think James and Sylvia share scotch. Mm-hmm earlier in the film and so it's a great pairing for this there's some indications that this is in like derbyshire area which is the midlands but there's also some indications in other parts of the story that it might be in the northumbria like northlands area so near closer to the scottish border so i thought scotch was a really good thing but one scotch isn't going to last you through the whole movie so by this point in the movie i'd switched to black tea which is what they bring a flask on their spelunking expedition. So my suggestion for a pairing for this movie is one scotch and one tea. That sounds about right. Yeah, I actually, I couldn't imagine eating during this film. There's like too much going on and a beverage pairing works perfectly. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, back to the show. So after the spelunking, There's one of these classic horror things where they let one of the characters wander off on her own. And for whatever reason, it doesn't occur to them that this is a terrible idea with possibly a, you know, giant worm on the loose. Or at the very least, you know, both of their parents had been killed (laughs) recently. And so they let Eve wander off on her own to go fix more tea for them when they get back. But Eve is led astray by Lady Sylvia perched or rather curled around the tree like the serpent in Genesis and Sylvia seems to hypnotize Eve and convince her to docilely follow her back to her lair slash house. (laughs) Yeah. Her plan starts with one of the best villain monologues I've heard in a long time delivered naked from a tanning bed. Like just just so perfect um and absolutely commands the room even from that kind of absurd perch but uh yeah we get a classic villain monologue where sylvia reveals her plan to sacrifice eve to the serpent in order to bring it back to full power she tests that she is in fact a virgin 
Yes, with that terrifying snake fang dildo type object, which uh, I'm going to have nightmares about that forever. Yeah. I mean, I guess she must have pierced something to determine that she was a virgin. I don't know. Because she didn't use her hand, she used that. So the only way, it's this pointy thing, so the only way she could tell would be if she pierced something (laughs) down there, you know? Yeah, or maybe it's like a measuring device and that, you know, she can tell... Never mind. I don't actually want any of this allowed (laughs) on the podcast. I don't, whatever was going to finish that sentence, I don't want to be known for, for the rest of my life. (laughs) Okay. So there's a phone call while this is happening. No, Sylvia has Eve called them. Called them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at first, even though from the audience perspective, Eve is delivering her fake lines in the most fake way possible so that you know they probably should have been able to see through it she's like yeah i'm at the train station everything's fine and uh but then she has a crucifix ring on her hand which when she catches sight of it it unlocks the trance she's in and she starts to break from her script and sylvia attacks her and they hear her scream on the other end of the phone just enough to know like okay well clearly we should probably make sure she's okay but when they call the station first mary is hilariously hit on by whoever it is that she called for help but they let her know that of course eve isn't at the train station where she said she was and they figure out pretty quickly where she must be yeah james has a theory He's beginning to put this together and believes that snakes are involved, that there's some kind of snake cult or something. So he puts giant speakers on the roof of his mansion and starts playing a phonograph record of snake charming music. Mm-hmm. And this draws Sylvia out of her basket and she does this sort of snake dance as she heads to the source of the music Mm -hmm. i think the record ended or something like that as a result like the butler gets bitten because she's now and she's now loose in the house right yeah also the mother ends up coming charmed yeah the sister's mother actually even mary their mother had been bitten and she shows up and this is where we get james pulling off his ancestral broadsword and just like slicing her in half and then she continues to writhe on the ground snake-like yeah after that he calls the cops and this is how we know it's a comedy because he tells them to go to whatever sylvia's house is whatever and he goes to stake it out the police officer guy and he calls for backup Mm-hmm. And he says, get over here. And the guy on the radio, which I believe is Ken Russell doing the voice of the guy on the, the other cop, says, I can't. You've got the car, like the car, you know? <laughs> and then he says, then take a taxi. And he says, I can't. I locked him up for drunk driving. <laughs> so, so yeah. It's that kind of a town. There's one taxi driver who drives under the influence. There's one cop car, you know, so. Well, and this is what Ken Russell said 
made him want to do this film in the first place was that it's a horror film that doesn't rely on exotic locales. There aren't like creepy castles in Transylvania or anything like that. It's just rural England, you know, just like farm country somewhere where you would have these small town kind of problems. And so I think Ken Russell thought that a modern adaptation of this could actually work pretty well. And I guess he knew in advance the comic potential. There's a a bit of folk horror here. It, so it's a cross between folk horror and more traditional horror. It's really infused with Anglo-Saxon and earlier Celtic mythology of England. There was supposed to be a sequel to this. Yes. Yes, there was. No, not a sequel to this. There was supposed to be a sequel to The Wicker Man that was supposed to feature the Lambton Worm. And it was supposed to come out around the same time as this. They scrapped it. Mm -hmm. But I think it eventually got a release. Like there's a fan-made version of it on YouTube that you can find somewhere. Huh. The Loathsome Lambton Worm. It's on YouTube. I haven't listened to it, but it was scheduled to come out at the same year as this. But I think, was it Nigel Neal? Didn't like the idea that the police officer survived, spoiler, burning at the end of Wicker Man. So wanted to make a whole film in which the whole point was just to kill the police officer. The like whole setup. All right, we're going to cast this cop as as another as a victim in another story. Yeah, but <laughs> the the whole point of it that I, the reason I bring it up is that you can see when you look at how the Wicker Man, which is sort of this quintessential British folk horror film, that they were considering the Lambton Worm for their sequel shows you how there is this connection in this movie, which seems more like a traditional horror film, but there is this connection to folk horror in this as well. I like how when he realizes that Sylvia must be in the house too, he says on the phone, James says, I think we've got another reptile loose on the premises. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can we just pause for a moment and just acknowledge that Hugh Grant is like perfectly playing the same Hugh Grant character he plays in every film like it's the same Hugh Grant from Sense and Sensibility it's the same Hugh Grant from Bridget Jones Diary and Four Weddings it's that character but just like as a dragon slayer archetype it's hysterical sometimes he's a villain like so he was a villain in most recently in um Dungeons and Dragons well yeah I mean in it I mean I think his villainous turn really started with there was this great show that you can watch on Amazon Prime called A Very British Scandal or A Very English Scandal, something like that. Ben Wishaw plays Hugh Grant's ex-lover and Hugh Grant is like running for prime minister or something and is trying to find a way to keep quiet the fact that he's closeted gay and Ben Wishaw is causing all these problems. Anyway, Hugh Grant is like a perfect villain in that. And then I think since then people have decided like, all right, no one can take you seriously as a leading man anymore. So this is your new lane running it <laughs> if we're gonna say that hugh grant is playing every hugh grant character here which i agree th but this is like <laughs> the genesis of it right this yeah. is like i think this is hugh grant's first film it's one of his first films if not the first one and then we get peter capaldi aka one of the doctors i don't know what number yeah anyway he plays the same guy too right 
Yeah. This is like an extended Doctor Who episode with <laughs> Hugh Grant. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there is a spoiler ahead. Fast forward if you don't want to hear it. Yeah, Hugh Grant has a great line to close it off. You know, after, of course, you know, Sylvia inevitably, her inevitable demise at the hands of the serpent that she was trying to bring back, Hugh Grant says, oh, well, that's real devotion for you. I mean, just like perfectly closing this off, but then... We won't say anything else to spoil the end of the film. Yeah, except that I have to say one thing, which is there's an awesome use of bagpipes. Yes. Oh, man, (laughs) that was so great. Yeah. Bagpipes as a weapon of sorts. So I just want to say the number of snake slash worm references, you get like a garden hose the pickled earthworms and aspic, the vacuum cleaner hose at one point when someone's stumbling uh, back, the watch hands that get melted, of course, snakes and ladders, the caterpillar snake charmer silent film. It looked like a Millier film. Oh, yeah, yeah. The crossword puzzle that he's doing at one point in time has a serpent on it. It's in his dream sequence, yeah. The flight attendants on the airplane dream they have a uh, a snake insignia. And then there's also a serpent sundial on the premises of the mansion. So all of that, I thought I needed to throw out there. And before we go uh, leave this film entirely, I am going to do something I don't normally do, which is talk about what other critics have said. Mm. Before I ask you your opinion on this film... Let me just say what I found on the web. (laughs) From Rotten Tomatoes, April Wolf of Film Comment Magazine said, quote, what's so wonderful about Russell's quintessential female villain is that she embodies a sense that evil has no gender. I mean, she uses that thing as a strap on later on. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Back to the quote. It has no feelings. It simply is. And it's quite fun to get to know it, unquote. Eddie Harrison of filmauthority.com said that it was, quote, a story that's part Doctor Who, part Nigel Neal, and mainly Ken Russell, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Anton Bittel, who writes for something called vodzilla.co, said, quote, more pantomime than horror, Ken Russell's unsurprisingly outrageous romp exposes conflicting substrates of British identity, unquote. Now that's Rotten Tomatoes. Now that's that's what the critics say. What the mm. people say, I took some reviews off of the internet movie database. Young Colin D11 said, very <laughs> silly, very 80s, very English B movie. Wow. Deeks SoCal Y Gal 27 said, favorable to teenage boys. <laughs> Jay Thompson 4119 said the Benny Hill show with bloodshed. Nice. Dell Davis 18 called it in all caps, the greatest film ever made. <laughs> and then I, re- I really like this next one. User Z Maturin said a great date movie. And this is the quote. I've heard complaints before from men of all walks of life. 
She wants to watch some syrupy romantic slush starring Hugh Grant. I want to watch something with hot naked snake worshiping chicks. <laughs> I'll complain no more. Here's a flick that's got both in one. And then finally, user B.A. Harrison said, quote, doesn't every Scottish archaeologist own a mongoose and a hand grenade? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, uh, both a mongoose and a hand grenade were deployed at one point or another in this film by Angus. Final thoughts. What did you think of this? Especially since we just watched The Devils. Well, I think it definitely helps if you go in with a playful attitude, like not taking it seriously because some of the sexual violence or threat of sexual violence is pretty disturbing but if you're coming at it from a maximalist point of view of you know he's intentionally throwing in things to disturb and titillate back and forth throughout the whole film then you're going to have a great time so just don't take the film too seriously and and let it be the fun nonsense that it was intended to be so what's your ultimate thumbs up or thumbs down? I'm glad I saw it. I I would only recommend it to other geeks, I have to say. Like I this is not general viewing material. This is this is for for geeks and horror fans only. Okay. Yeah, I can agree with that. I saw it in the theater, as I mentioned earlier. I loved it. It is not a great film, <laughs> but it is a fun film. That's for sure. It is an interesting twist on the vampire film, especially in a decade that had so many great vampire films, you know, from The Lost Boys to Near Dark to The Hunger. You know, the 80s was just Fright Night. It was like a high watermark for vampire films. And uh, I thought, you know, nobody's going to come up with another good twist on this. And this was. I think that about wraps up this episode i want to say that you should definitely write to us if you know what that damn cap that hugh grant's character james was wearing in this <laughs> you can write to us at gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com until next time this is eric this is johanna signing off Never mind. I don't actually want any of this allowed on the podcast. I don't, whatever was going to finish that sentence, I don't want to be known for for the rest of my life. <laughs>